0: Time to talk about someone very special. You know who he is. Satan, evilest devil, evil one. Sing off praises to his greatness. Lucifer, Diablo, Beelzebub, serpents. Sing off praises to his greatness.
1: So tell me why you wrote this song about uh, Satan. I just got so about the appalling logic that Christians use to fuel their bullshit, and I thought it'd be really great to write a song that would take all of the logical arguments and invert them and pull them inside out. Isn't that what Satanism itself is, an inversion of, of Christianity? Uh, I'm not sure, because if you take a look at the people around in America, they've got so much more in common with Satanism than they do with Christianity. They drive around their trucks, they're stuffing big burgers in their bellies. That's what it's all about. It's about the will to excess.
2: So you, you don't really sound like a Satanist, be like...
1: Oh, no, I'm, I'm hardcore, man, I'm all the way, you know, you know, I I'm telling you, it's it does something for me. I'm, I'm not really, you know, I don't believe in anything except for my eBay sales, but I'm telling you, when you take a look, it from a totally detached point of view, heaven's boring, but in hell, it's like a nonstop sex orgy. You read Dante's Inferno, it sounds a lot cooler than... God, I, I don't really remember any sex parties in, in the Inferno. Well, they edited that stuff out. The monks did, of course. The monks realized the, uh, the original Dante's Inferno mm. was... To totally different it evil one, sing of
3: rises to his greatness Lucifer
0: the lord below feels sing of rises to his greatness to his greatness to his greatness
4: that's the musician Be Light, with his song Hallelujah, a song about Satan, or the evil one. Now, the concept of evil has made somewhat of a comeback over the past few years. The president certainly talks about it a lot.
1: Evil, 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 evil.
4: But what exactly is Mr. Bush talking about? What is evil? Where does it come from? And how do we protect ourselves from it? My name is Benjamin Walker, and this is The Theory of Everything, this week on the radio program, evil. We're going to start off this week with a story about a man who definitely believes in evil. So much so, in fact, he even changed his name. T.O.E. reporter Sean Cole has this report.
5: you're older, chances are this dirge is sending chills up and down your spine. It's the music ascribed to Darth Vader, evil ruler of the Death Star. And in an age where Hollywood bad guys are either price-fixing corporate bigwigs or psycho killers with superhuman IQs, Darth Vader is still the only enemy who can lay claim to the lofty stature of evil. But what is evil? Well, if you ask Bo Jackson, a Darth Vader impersonator in Salem, Massachusetts, evil is as evil does. So when Bo lifts you up by your neck and holds you in midair, it's not a mean prank, it's an evil act. And when he goes grocery shopping for his ailing mother in his black armored suit, his cape flowing behind him as he walks down the cereal aisle, because he's the one doing it, he says, that's an evil act too. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Bo's 38. When the first Star Wars movie came out, he was 9. Like the other kids in school, the movie obsessed him. But he didn't have all the action figures and trading cards and paraphernalia like the other kids. Bo only had one action figure. Darth Vader. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. Bo had, and still has, hundreds of Darth Vader toys and dolls of every size. Made out of every material you can think of. Glass. Glass. Rubber, porcelain, he even has a giant plush Darth Vader pillow, a rare collectible that today fetches as much as $300 on the internet. As a child, Bo was skinny and awkward. The other kids picked on him, called him Bomo-sexual and Little Bo Creep. It made him mad. But he was too shy to express his anger, so he'd just burst into tears. Darth Vader was everything Bo wanted to be. Commanding. Vengeful. Even violent no 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 that wasn't it at all this is Bo. i should mention here that two years ago he had a voice synthesizer surgically implanted into his trachea so that he could sound more like darth vader
0: no i didn't care about those little punks then what was it
5: i mean why darth vader
0: because he's evil but what does that mean it means he's not anybody's bitch he's totally autonomous plus he doesn't get caught up in stupid sentiment you know what i mean He's not like everyone else, limping around, talking about their emotions. Darth Vader's focused. He keeps it simple.
5: Bo and I are sitting in his mom's basement, where he's been living since he was six. His room is a virtual Vaderville. Vader sheets, Vader curtains, custom-built shelves house his Vader figure collection. Mounted on the walls are various Darth Vader masks and costumes that Bo has built over the years. His latest model, the one he's wearing during our chat, is legendary in Star Wars circles, an exact replica of the costume used in the movies.
0: As you can see, I've made about 12. Uh, I kept them all except the first one. That one was a piece of s**t.
5: Bo made that first Vader costume when he was 16. Regardless of how he feels about it now, it was good enough to impress the people at Lucasfilms. He sent them photos, and they replied with a certificate that authorized him to dress as the Dark Lord in public.
0: I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I was so stunned, I, I couldn't leave my room for like two years. When Bo finally
5: emerged from the basement, he brought the certificate and a new and improved Vader suit over to the Chuck E. Cheese restaurant in Revere, Mass., and they gave him a job. Five nights a week, he lorded over small children and their chaperones, lifting the kids up by their necks, using the force to spill drinks on unruly customers. It was heaven, or whatever the evil version of heaven is. Bo held this job for 12 years. He thought it was the job he would do for the rest of his life. But then, in 1999, reality surpassed even his wildest dreams. Or so he
0: thought. They came out with episode one. You know, the prequel. Well, I get this letter from Lucasfilm saying they've been admiring my work, and they want to hire me to be the Darth Vader who does all the big Star Wars promotions in New England. I was thrilled!
5: But there was a catch. Remember, Return of the Jedi ends with Darth Vader's redemption. He dies de-helmeted, passively smiling at his son Luke. And Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, features Vader as a little kid, racing around Tatooine, shouting things like, Yippee! at the top of his lungs. So, included with the invitation from Lucas Films, Bo received a directive issued to all official impersonators. It stated that from now on, all sanctioned portrayals of the Dark Lord were to include the character's, quote, inner good side.
0: Good side? It's like asking a Hitler impersonator to go up on stage and say, actually, you know what? I'm really sorry I gassed all those Jews. Nobody wants that. But what about the end
5: of Return of the Jedi? I mean, doesn't he forsake the dark side for the good side or whatever? That's
0: revisionist bullshit. And everyone knows that in 1983, the Christian Coalition put the screws to Lucas to change the ending of Return of the Jedi. The original script's on the internet. Darth Vader never had a f***ing good side. He's evil to the core. Evil, evil, evil. Bo took
5: the job but he wouldn't play by the rules. In fact, he was filled with a new resolve to be the evilest Vader he could be, to be the one to tell the truth about Vader to a brainwashed world. This plan lasted exactly two days. After he was caught lifting up a teenage heckler by the neck outside a KFC in Pittston, Maine, Bo was fired. Worse yet, Lucasfilms took his refusal to portray Vader's good side as an act of industrial sabotage, and informed Bo that he was no longer legally permitted to play Vader for pay at public events. That's when Bo changed his name to Darth Vader.
0: I figured that could get me around the directive somehow.
5: Really? Yeah.
0: I thought that if my name was Darth Vader, then how could they stop me from being Darth Vader?
5: But they own Darth Vader. I mean, they they have a patent on the character. He's copyrighted.
0: Okay, I understand what you're saying. But look, my... Driver's license says my name is Darth Vader, and so does my uh, social security card, and my library card, and my blood donor card, and no one can tell me that I am not Darth Vader.
5: The loss of his job, the nullification of his certificate, it was too much for Bo to handle. Plus, there was the little matter of his icon being, in his words, pussy whipped into a PC shadow of his former evilness. On top of it all, Bo was broke having just spent all his money on the tracheotomy. So he took a job as an overnight attendant in a hotel parking garage. He'd show up to work in the requisite uniform, his backpack bulging suspiciously, and in the still morning hours when no one was around, he'd slip into his Vader suit and stare out at the rows of cars from behind his black metal mask. Then one night... Bo found himself face down in handcuffs on the dirty garage floor. The police had gotten a tip. A parking lot attendant dressed as Darth Vader was spotted in his little booth, masturbating with one hand and choking himself with the other. Bo denies the allegations. He says he was just trying to get his lightsaber out of its
0: sheath. It's a conspiracy. I was set up. By who? George Lucas. He doesn't want me to exist because he knows. He knows that I'm the real Darth Vader. The truth scares him.
5: Bo's arrest didn't receive much mainstream press, but it spread like wildfire through the Star Wars community. The respect and admiration he used to command for his elaborate Vader suits and extensive Vader collections, none of that mattered anymore. Now he was simply known as the Master Vader. Meantime, George Lucas secured a court order barring Bo from ever presenting himself as Darth Vader in public again, an order Bo refuses to abide by. Four or five times a week, he shops for his mom at the supermarket dressed as Darth Vader. His morning coffee runs and late-night ice cream excursions are all conducted in costume. And every Saturday, without fail, a dark-cloaked figure can be seen perusing the aisles of Chris's Cards and Comics in downtown Salem. Do you ever wonder, Darth, what your life would be like if, say, it was uh, Luke Skywalker or Yoda that made the big impression
0: on you? Your questions have grown tiresome!
5: Um, you're just kind of raising your arm in the air and and gripping your fingers like you're choking someone.
0: Had enough, Knave!
5: Sitting in his basement... Watching Beau pretend to throttle me with his gloved hand, I realized how little we know about evil. We're conditioned to believe that human nature is essentially good, that evil is a choice. People certainly choose to do bad things, to carry out so-called evil deeds. But how many people do you know who've consciously chosen to go over to the dark side? Perhaps evil is something that nobody chooses, but rather something that seeks out the weak, the scared, the alone, something that chooses its own constituency. Silence Hey Darth, are are you okay?
0: I have you now.
4: The one and only Sean Cole reporting for the TOE investigative fiction desk. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that we are taking evil lightly. In fact, I've actually had a first-hand experience with evil. This was in March of 2002. I was on my way to Africa, and I had to get a visa from the Ghanaian embassy at The Hague in the Netherlands. And so I figured that, since I was there, I would drop by the trial of Slobodan Milosevic and pay the butcher of Belgrade a visit. Check, check. Okay, we're rolling. Good day to you. This is Benjamin Walker. I'm in the Netherlands. I've just got off the train at Central Station here in The Hague. It's a quiet day. I took the train from Amsterdam to The Hague because, well, I wanted to see Slobodan Milosevic, who is currently standing trial for... Crimes against humanity. Don't know what the Hague people like to do on Friday afternoons, but. The trial was getting a lot of press, and pretty much every article said the same thing how Slobodan was belligerent, defiant, constantly berating the magistrates, making scenes. But there was one article in particular that really caught my attention. It mentioned that the former dictator was doing a lot of reading in his cell books by John Updike, Ernest Hemingway. For some reason, I couldn't get this out of my head. In fact, the image of this petulant war criminal lounging around in his cell, reading books, kind of kind of drove me nuts. TV, TV, I could understand, but reading.
2: Excuse me, I'm looking for the Yugoslav Tribunal. What building is that?
3: Um, uh-uh, Yugoslav Tribunal. How can I best to Keep going. Yes, to the right and uh, at the traffic lights to the left.
2: Thank you so much. Have a good day. So right side. You, you know those posters
4: you always see in the library? They say things like, reading makes you human, or read, discover humanity. Well, I've always taken those at face value. That's why I'm fascinated with Slobodan Milosevic. Here we have the butcher of the Balkans on trial forced to confront his crimes and his victims but yet all he can muster up is contempt and scorn, no remorse, no empathy, but yet every night he goes back to his cell and puts up his boots and reads books. So I decided that obviously he um, isn't reading the right books. So I went to The Hague and brought him some better ones I'm looking at myself in the window right now I have all these wires and cables coming out of my pockets and I'm holding a microphone in one hand and a bag of books in the other maybe I should take the sunglasses off excuse me one of the books that I brought him was Flow My Tears the Policeman Said by the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick At the end of the book, Felix Buckman, who's the policeman of the title, has just learned that his wife's died of a drug overdose. He's flying around in his quibble car, weeping. Then he stops at this robot gas station where there's a middle-aged black man in a topcoat waiting for his car to be filled as well. Buckman gets out of his quibble and, on a little scrap of paper, draws a picture of a heart pierced by an arrow. And then they have this conversation. Here, let me read you a bit. The black man said slowly and firmly, but also a little loudly, These places, these coin-operated robot gas stations, are downers late at night. Sometime later on, we can talk more where it's friendly. That can tell you're feeling down at the mouth, you know, depressed. Depressed. That's why you handed me that note, which I'm afraid I didn't flash on at the time, but do now, and I've had that sort of inspiration, or rather call it impulse, from time to time during my life. I'm 47 now. I understand. You want to not be by yourself late at night, especially when it's unseasonably chilly like it is right now. But it's okay. I can dig it. Don't worry about it one damn bit. You must drop over. You can meet my wife and our kids, three and all. have this scenario in my head. Slobodan is in court, only now his attitude is different. He's no longer cross-examining the witnesses, he's no longer dismissing anyone's testimony or scoffing at anyone's credentials. He just sits there in his chair with his head bowed, every now and then doodling something in his notebook. Then, a little Albanian girl tells the story of how the Serbian army killed her entire family. He doesn't even look her in the eye. But when she finishes her account of how her mother and sister were both raped and then shot up with assault rifles, he lunges out of his seat. The guards tackle him as he runs towards the blue chair where the little girl is seated. They pry a piece of paper from his outstretched hand and pass it to the judge. It's a drawing of a heart pierced by an arrow.
2: Excuse me, sir. Is this the, um yugoslav tribunal building is there a main visitor entrance yes if you go that way then turn left and then you'll come to the other side of this building okay a main entrance and this is where the milosevic trials being held this is in here yes uh, okay thank you so much
4: i also brought slobodan milosevic a collection of short stories called the fierce and beautiful world by the russian writer andrei platonov one of the stories is called homecoming It's about a soldier, Ivanov, who returns home after four years. His wife confesses to him that in her loneliness she had once reached out to another man. And Ivanov throws a tantrum at this, and in the morning he sneaks away to board an outgoing train. As the train pulls out of the station, he realizes that his two children are running alongside the tracks, chasing after him. Here, let me read you this part. Ivanov closed his eyes, not wanting to see and feel the hurt of the falling, exhausted children, and he realized how hot his chest had grown, just as if the heart languishing inside it, after beating uselessly all his life, had suddenly broken out into a kind of freedom, filling his whole being with warmth and with trembling. He was now aware of all that he had known before, but much more precisely and more realistically. Before, he had felt life through a barrier of pride and self-interest, and now, suddenly, he had touched its naked heart. All of Platonov's stories take place in an alternative reality of sorts, a reality where there is still pain and suffering and unhappiness, but at the same time, always the possibility of redemption. And in Platonov's reality, this redemption is, is never something cosmic or theological, but rather human and always within our reach. I like to imagine Slobodan exposed to this reality late at night in his cell. I especially like to imagine the look on his face when he puts the book down, and yet the reality doesn't go away.
2: Hello, sir. Can I do for you? Uh, recording devices aren't allowed in the building? No sir. Um. Yeah, I work for radio in the United States. Where's that? I'd love to. I can't take. Take notes. Um. Can I leave them with you? You will lock them in a locker. Okay. The courtroom
4: was separated from the press room by a wall of glass, but I was able to sit pretty much directly in front of Milosevic, and he definitely noticed me because I, well, I waved at him, and of course a guard immediately came over and informed me that waving was absolutely forbidden, so I refrained from making any further gestures, but I wanted to, you know, point at me, point at the books, and point at him. All right, here's the deal. I'm in the main lobby now. There playing on the monitors what I just witnessed in the courtroom um, the judge is about to ask slobodan milosevic if he has any concerns with the new eight-hour timetable and he's totally gonna go off uh, which you'll hear uh, his translator the woman in English for some reason he's not addressing the court in English today but listen okay here we go
3: yes I did well. From 6 to 8.30 is the only time in which I can use the telephone, which means two and a half hours in the evening. But the possibility I have to communicate with my associates will also be restricted because that time has been limited to 8.30 when everything closes down so I won't be able to use the public phone box which exists in the corridor either after that time let me repeat I make no requests I don't ask for anything but I want it to be known what conditions I have been placed in and if this is a way to abuse and mistreat the accused then I would like to have this understood in this way Uh, Because in the time that I have at my disposal, I'm not able to uh, see to my basic human needs, especially as you intend to have this last endlessly. But a human being does have the need to uh, breathe fresh air, to eat, and to communicate. But as I say, let me repeat, I'm not asking for anything. I just want this to be noted.
4: Is that not amazing or what? Poor Slobo doesn't get enough time to use the telephone. You know, as I stood there listening to him go off about how he's being so abused, all I could remember was how back in 1995 I used to work at this little magazine store and we'd have NPR on all day, so I'd pretty much stand behind the counter and just listen to story after story about how the... Serbian army was overrunning safe areas and massacring villages, and I remember all I wanted to do was find Slobodan Milosevic and rip his arms off and beat him with them. And now, ten years later, I'm here at his trial, bringing him reading material. I've just delivered the books now to the registry, and they've promised me that they will give them to him at the beginning of next week, I wrote a little note on the inside of the Platonov book. I wrote, uh, Dear Slobodan Milosevic, I understand that you love literature, so I have brought you these books. I hope you enjoy them. And then I signed my name and wrote my address, which is insane because, like, this guy could have me killed. I mean, what if he thinks I'm mocking him? Oh, man, I totally should have not given him the crime and punishment. The third book that I brought Slobodan was Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. You can see how this book could be misconstrued, but Crime and Punishment really was the main reason I went to The Hague. You know the story. Young Raskolnikov kills the miserly old moneylender after deciding she doesn't deserve to live. Then he spends a few hundred pages fighting his conscience, his family, a police detective, and the love of a young street prostitute until finally he breaks down and confesses his crime and is sentenced to prison. The book ends with an epilogue in which Raskolnikov finally comes to understand his crime and his culpability. But it's more than guilt or an acceptance of responsibility. It's transformation. Let me just read you the last two sentences. But here begins a new account. The account of a man's gradual renewal. The account of his gradual regeneration, his gradual transition from one world to another, his acquaintance with a new, hitherto completely unknown reality. It might make the subject of a new story, but our present story is ended About a month after my visit to The Hague, I got a certified letter in the mail informing me that my books were given to Mr. Milosevic. The letter was cc'd to Slobodan himself, but I never received anything from him. And so I am unable to report to you what, if any, effect the books had. I actually don't like to think about this episode very much. My gesture of goodwill seems Totally nonsensical today. Absurd. Perhaps I'm just pissed off that he never bothered to send me a thank you note. Or perhaps evil, as the young hero of the movie Time Bandits discovered, is something not to be touched. That's it for this week's program. Special thanks to Jay Allison of Transom.org for featuring the Darth Vader impersonator piece I did with Sean Cole. As for the Slobodan Milosevic piece, I have to thank Barrett Golding and Larry Massett of HearingVoices.org and Dean Olsher and Michael Kavanaugh of The Next Big Thing. You can find more information about TOE on the internet at www.toeradio.org, as well as a complete audio archive. My name is Benjamin Walker. Be sure to tune in next week for another Theory of Everything.